So the first Friday of every month, we get the release of the non-farm payroll numbers in the U.S. And this Friday, we got a big beat versus expectations. In the U.S., we created 850,000 private sector jobs versus a 706,000 job estimate. Unemployment rose, however, from 5.6% to 5.9%, so a slight increase on the unemployment rate. Wages increased for the month by 0.3%, and they increased by 3.6% year over year. The average work week was reported for 34.7 hours, and this non-farm payroll number looks very good on the surface, but you cannot just take the surface value of these numbers. You have to actually dive into all the details, and we'll get into that in a minute. But this just shows that inflation is not transitory. Wage increases are never rolled back. When wage increases occur, right, when businesses offer higher hourly wages and higher salaries to workers, they never take them away because then they'll lose the workers that they hired if they then lower their their wages. That doesn't happen. So inflation can't be transitory if wage increases are continuing to go up. Again, 3.6% year over year increase in wages. All that is here to stay. And believe me, all of those costs are going to get passed down from the producers, from the companies to their consumers. And it's going to raise prices. But let's get into the breakdown of the non-form payroll numbers. Out of the 850,000 jobs added, 343,000 of them were in hospitality. And of those 343,000, 194,000 of those were in bars and restaurants. 269,000 jobs are added in education, which it's, you know, it's the beginning of the summer, so obviously schools are hiring new teachers for next year. 72,000 jobs were added to professional services. 67,000 retail jobs, 56,000 jobs in other industries, 29,000 were personal and laundry services, and most of these 56,000 jobs are are part of the gig economy. The Uber drivers, the Lyft drivers, uh, the Instacart delivery people. So 56,000 of these jobs were gig jobs, mostly part-time jobs. Social assistance grew by 32,000. Wholesale trade grew by 21,000. Mining grew by 10,000. And then lastly, the most important number for our economy, the manufacturing jobs, was only a 15,000 increase. Now, this is a very weak report when you look at it. I mean, most of the jobs were just added to hospitality as bars and restaurants are coming back and, you know, the the summer opening is coming. But these are all low-paying jobs. These are not jobs that increase the livelihood of, of tons of people. A lot of these jobs are actually just teenagers and college students looking for summer work. So even though we had a big beat versus expectations with the overall job number, these this is a very, very weak report. We also lost 7,000 construction jobs as the housing market continues to slow down. A big part of this as well is because Materials are still extremely expensive. Labor is still extremely expensive. So there's not as many new housing starts now because it's too expensive to build new homes. And that's another reason for why the housing market continues to roar as far as the price of existing homes. But again, if we have such a strong economy, supposedly, why is it we only gained 15,000 manufacturing jobs when we already don't manufacture anything here? We should be adding tons of manufacturing jobs, but we're not. And when you look at at manufacturing, it's the most important part of our economy because it relates to our deficits in trade. A trade deficit, by definition, means that an economy is not productive. If you make a range of goods in an economy and you do not have enough goods to satisfy the demand of your economy that is weakness, right? And so then you have to go and buy goods from other nations in order to fulfill that demand. But if you had a productive economy, you'd have an economy that produced enough goods for all of their citizens and then produced extra goods as a surplus that we could then sell to other nations. 
So with our trade deficits, again, if you look at January, we had an $85 billion trade deficit, February $88 billion, March $91 billion, April $85 billion, May $88 billion. So we continue to have these skyrocketing trade deficits. Why are we not adding jobs in manufacturing? Well, one, it's too expensive to manufacture goods here and compete with other nations around the world. But two, because our economy is incredibly weak. And so we can't add too many jobs in manufacturing because nobody's willing to work in manufacturing. But we need more manufacturing jobs. A strong non-farm payroll report would have reported much more than just 15,000 manufacturing jobs. So the overall non-farm payroll numbers are extremely weak. Again, the markets just look at the, the surface number of 850,000 jobs versus 706,000 estimate, but you have to look beneath the surface, and it just shows how weak our economy is, that the only jobs we're adding back are jobs that are just coming back in bars and restaurants, and we're just hiring more waiters and bartenders. That's not going to drive a strong ec economy. It's not going to create economic growth. It's just going to create more consumer spending. And as by the way, as people go back to work and forfeit their initial extended unemployment benefits, they're going to be earning less money at work than they were earning through unemployment, which means that consumer spending in the future is going to decline. And our entire economy is built on consumer spending because we have a service sector economy, because we don't have a productive economy that produces goods in manufacturing. So overall, very weak non-farm payroll numbers. Uh, markets seem to not understand the difference between manufacturing jobs and productive jobs versus retail and hospitality jobs. Anyway, I want to get to uh, why it's important that we manufacture goods. As I said, productive nations have trade surpluses and unproductive nations have trade deficits. But we continue to buy all of our products from different nations, mostly China or other Asian countries. And it's extremely important to understand how bad our trade deficits actually are. Again, as I said, from January through May for the first five months of the year, we had trade deficits that all exceeded $85 billion each month. And that just adds to our national debt. But as I've gone over on past episodes, the way we pay for these imports when is you either export goods to help pay for them in, in a trade, or if you don't have enough goods to export to pay for the imports, then the government has to pay for the additional money that's needed. Only the government that we have doesn't have any money, so that means that the Federal Reserve has to print money in order to buy U.S. Treasury bonds so that the government has excess money to buy all of these imports. And so what we do is we just give our IOUs, our treasury bonds, to foreign governments that trade with us, and we promise to pay them back in the future. But that just grows our national de deficit, right? And it's showing that we have a very weak economy under the surface. But if you look at January... Exports, we exported $134 billion worth of goods. We imported $219 billion worth of goods. February, we imported $218 billion worth of goods, and we only exported $129 billion worth of goods. March, exports, we exported $143 billion worth of goods, and we imported $235 billion worth of goods. April and May, we both exported $144 billion worth of goods, yet we imported $230 billion worth of goods. So when you hear on CNBC, there's all this consumer demand for goods. Well, why is that? Because we're not producing anything ourselves, clearly. We're only producing about half of what we need in our economy. All this consumer demand is coming from government stimulus extended supplemental unemployment benefits, and all of the, this welfare money that's being shelled out. The only reason consumers are in high demand is because they're getting all this money from the government because of artificially low interest rates, which again are propping up asset prices 
stocks and real estate so people feel wealthier and so they want to go out and spend more money. But we're spending so much more money than we actually have because what gives money value is the goods and services produced from that money. So if you go into work and earn $1,000, that $1,000 represents $1,000 of input in producing a good or a service for the economy. But the only thing we're really producing is service sector jobs. So we're just doing providing services for a bunch of Americans. We're not actually producing any goods that need to be produced. And all this consumer demand is artificial because it's coming from money printing from the government. And, you know, if, if we had a productive economy, we would just have more and more goods. And so then prices could come down for goods. Now, another piece of these huge trade deficits is the price of oil. Oil has been on an uptrend month after month after month since the COVID crisis. When oil dropped incredibly low from the crisis and nobody traveling and no demand for oil, oil really took a hit. But oil, the oil market has been roaring since then. We just got over yesterday $75 a barrel in oil. And the reason this is so important is because the price of oil has a big effect on prices within the economy. As I said, we import all twice as many goods as we export. And so all those imported goods that are coming from overseas have to be shipped here. And it takes a lot of oil to ship those products here, right? And then once those products get here, they go to Amazon warehouses where Amazon then has to use more gasoline to deliver the packages to Americans. And so oil is a very big cost in transports and logistics, and it just drives up consumer prices. It drives up the price of importing products from overseas. So as the price of oil continues to rise, our trade deficits are also going to continue to rise to reflect that that additional cost in transport. But our trade deficits continue to grow, and it shows that we continue to be less and less productive as a nation compared to consumer spending. And again, the only reason we have high consumer spending is because we have so many people getting money from the government and we have such low credit standards from having artificially low interest rates. People are able to borrow money from all over the place and people are able to go out and spend that borrowed money. But once that goes away, we're going to have to start producing our own products, right? Once these foreign nations no longer want to accept our U.S. Treasury bonds, which we don't have any money to pay these nations back when they want to turn their U.S. Treasury bonds in, right? Once this goes away, we're going to have to start producing products for ourselves. We're going to have to add back manufacturing jobs. But the re- one of the reasons we can't add manufacturing jobs is because our labor costs in the United States are so high, A, because of minimum wage, B, because of all of the regulatory burdens on manufacturing firms that hire people, it's so expensive to hire people and therefore so expensive to produce goods here to compete with low-cost goods coming from Asian countries that we simply can't produce those goods here. That's why a lot of these goods get produced overseas because companies can't afford to produce them in America because we're uncompetitive with the rest of the world. But again, all this just references how weak our economy actually is. And when you look at a non-farm payroll report, you can't just look at the overall number of jobs created. You have to look beneath the surface and see where those jobs actually were created. And most of the jobs, as I said, were in hospitality, bars and restaurants, and in retail, and in in other industries such as the gig economy, where people are just driving Uber or delivering groceries or what have you. So a very, very weak payroll number altogether. Anyway, I want to get into this article that I read on the Uber CEO, Dara, and forgive me if I get the the last name wrong, it's a tough one, Dara Kashrasha, who's the CEO of Uber. And there was a Forbes article on him where he took a weekend to work as an Uber Eats delivery person. And so he he worked in San Francisco. Uh, He did... A weekend where he did 16 deliveries 
Uh, I think he worked about 10 or 11 hours. He worked five or six hours on a Saturday and five or six on a Sunday. But he wanted to do some deliveries for Uber Eats on a bike to get an experience for what some of his employees are going through and, and what the actual job experience is working for Uber Eats in a highly populated area like San Francisco. And he's actually getting a lot of scrutiny for this. Now, it shows that he earned including the tips that he received, $149 for 16 deliveries. And for the amount of time that he spent, he earned about $27 per hour uh, before taxes. And I think the way that a lot of people are viewing this article is they're looking at it and saying, see, he's trying to prove a point that as an Uber delivery person, you can make a substantial amount of money, and he's trying to encourage more and more people to come work for Uber. Uh, Uber's actually had a lot of competition in the hiring space for the gig economy. Uh, Several years ago, they were one of the only gig uh, employers in the nation. Now they have competition with all sorts of uh, other employers like DoorDash, Grubhub, uh, Postmates, Instacart, Lyft, um, there, there are all sorts of different gig jobs available to people who would prefer to have a gig job that it's very difficult now for Uber to hire workers. Um, Instacart's a big part of this too because if you work for Instacart, you're just delivering groceries to people. Whereas if you work as an Uber driver, you have to actually drive people around. And so you have to actually have strangers in your vehicle as opposed to Instacart where you don't have to deal with other people. But Uber has been having a very tough time hiring people, and so that's why he went and did this to show how much money you can actually make as an Uber driver or an Uber delivery person uh, by bicycle in a highly populated area. And clearly, in a in a city, you can make a lot more money riding a bicycle than you can if you're doing delivery by car. A because you can get a lot more deliveries in a small time frame, and B you don't have all the costs of gas, insurance, wear and tear on your car, right? So you make a lot more money if you can deliver on a bike. But again, he did this weekend of work. He made about $27 per hour, and he got a lot of pushback from people saying, well, you should try and do this every day for a month and try and feed your family for a month on this wage. And it's, it's incredible, all the pushback, because you would think that a CEO going and getting his hands dirty, getting into the mud, if you will, to see what it's like to be one of the frontline workers for this company. You would think that that would actually be something that would be praised, right? I mean, isn't that what you want from a leader within an organization is to know exactly what the frontline worker is going through and to actually get his hands dirty, roll up his sleeves and go do the hard work, right? This should be something that's being that should be praised, but instead people are just want they want to you know say oh the guy's you know he's just a greedy CEO this is a publicity stunt you know he should try and live off this wage and and see how he could take care of his family in San Francisco at such a low wage and all of this is just it's a bunch of nonsense. Um, so in that article, the Forbes article, it also goes over what the average Uber driver makes in San Francisco per hour. And the average salary for a Uber driver in the San Francisco area is $23.34, which if you worked a 40-hour work week without any vacation time, would add up to $48,500 a year to drive Uber in San Francisco. And again, that would be, you know, as a, a gig worker where you can choose your own hours, dress however you like, you don't have a boss, you can, you know, there's a lot of freedom there, right? You can take breaks whenever you want. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's a very relaxed job and it gives people a lot of lifestyle choices. And look, $48,500 before taxes is not that much money anymore. The cost of living is rising so much that that just doesn't go very far. And, and of course, that's before taxes. So when you add taxes into the mix, you know, it really is not that much money. So I, I get where people are coming from and saying that this $48,000 per year is nothing. They need to raise pay for Uber drivers. And, you know, even if you're driving Uber, like I said, it's much more economical if you're delivering on a bike in a heavy, heavily populated city. But 
let's assume you're not in a heavily populated city and you can only do Uber if you're driving your own car. Well, then you need to account for gas, insurance, wear and tear on your car, right? So there's a lot of expenses that go into that work. So you're actually earning a lot less money than $48,000 per year because your expenses are so high. And you're not reimbursed for those expenses either. But then on top of that, you know, when you work for an Uber, you're not considered an employee, you're considered a general contractor. And as a general contractor, you are a 1099 employee. And what that means is you're paying 15% payroll taxes. Now, a typical employee only pays 7.5% payroll taxes, and their employer pays the other 7.5%. And these are the Social Security and Medicaid taxes. Now, when you're an Uber driver, you're paying all 15% of these. And so you're getting taxed at a higher rate than what a typical employee is. So you have to have to calculate that as part of your expense too, because you're paying an extra 7.5% on every dollar you earn. But when you add in all these costs, right, the typical Uber driver or gig economy worker is making less than $15 an hour because, again, you have all these car expenses that are related to the job, right? Your car is depreciating very at a very high pace when you're doing some sort of delivery work and you're paying higher taxes than you would pay if you were a typical employee. And so you're making less than $15 an hour. Now, on a side note, there's actually a way to avoid paying taxes as a gig worker. Um, I'm not too sure of the details of this, but I do know that if you earn under a certain amount of income with one uh, employer, that that income is not reported to the IRS because it's not obligated to be reported. And so if you're going to be a gig worker, the best way to go about it would be to work for all of the gig employers in the economy. And then just make sure that you earn below a certain amount of income for each employer and spread your working hours between five or six different gig economy employers. And then you can avoid paying a lot of taxes. But getting back to the average salary of an Uber driver, right? Yes, Uber drivers make less than 15 per hour. And that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Again, there's a lot of perks that comes with being an Uber driver that does not come with being a typical employee elsewhere. You have lifestyle choices. You choose when you work. You can work as little or as much as we want to. You can wear whatever you want to work. You don't have a boss, right? You can bring someone with you to work if you want to sit in the passenger seat of your car. There's a lot of advantages to working as a gig worker. And so you're, you're, that part of that compensation is going to come from the perks of being a gig worker. But, you know, getting back to the whole situation where people are upset with the CEO for doing this, I mean, people should be happy about it. You know, he, he's getting into the weeds. He's trying to understand what the frontline worker of Uber is going through how hard it is to do the job, what they actually make on a daily basis. This should be praised, but it's not. And why is it not praised? Well, because we have so many people in America who think that we need a higher minimum wage. And that is where I'm going to get into the conversation of the minimum wage. And the minimum wage is the dumbest law ever created. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And all it does is hurt low-income earners. But the law is completely ridiculous. Now, if we look at the minimum wage, the minimum wage applies to entry-level job positions where it takes very little or no skills to perform the job. Now, entry-level jobs are meant for teenagers, college students, people who may need part-time work on the side or a second job, right? Entry-level jobs are for those types of people. Entry-level jobs are not for somebody who is trying to support a family. If you want to have a family, before you have that family, you need to develop your skills to a point where you can earn much more than the minimum wage, and so therefore you can take care of your family. But entry-level jobs are best suited for teenagers, college students, and people who need part-time work. 
And as an economy, we would be better off if these were the types of people filling entry-level positions. As I went over in the non-farm payroll report, we want people working good jobs. It's not good enough to just have people in a job, but you want highly skilled people in highly skilled, high-paying jobs. You want low-skilled people working low-income jobs. And that's where we get into the minimum wage and how destroy how much it destroys our economy. Because if you are an unskilled worker, if you're a teenager or a college student and you do not have any skills, the only way you get skills is you get a job. That is how you gain experience in the marketplace. And when you get your first job, it allows you to start climbing the job ladder. You get experience, you get to network with people, you get yourself out there, you get to learn a little bit about how the world works, and you increase your skills. And as you increase your skills, you increase your value to an employer, and you then get to convince them that they can pay you more money because you provide more revenue for that employer. Now, if you want to look at the minimum wage, right? It destroys all sorts of jobs the higher it gets raised. But if you're a non-skilled person, you need to get skills. And the only way to get skills is to get a job or get an education. Now, it's funny because if we go off on a sidebar and look at education, right? You have so many people today go to college and pay tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a degree. Now, when you go to college, you're working for free. You're not getting paid to be in class. You're there for free, working for free. And on top of that, you're paying for access to the courses and to the professors. So you're actually working at a loss because, it, I mean, college is work, right? It's not considered a job, but it is work. So you're working at a loss and it's okay for students to work and lose money while they work, but it's not okay for a person to work a job for $5 an hour, or $10 an hour. Well, how backwards is that, right? At least if you're working a job, at least you're getting paid something. And on the job, you can gain experience that's just as valuable as education that you get in the classroom. In many cases, it's actually much more valuable than what you'll learn in a classroom. But, you know, it, 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 people say, oh, it's not right that someone would work for 5 or $10 an hour. But it, it, people work for free in college. So why, what do you mean that's not right? People do it all the time, right? You have internships. Now, today you have internships or mostly paid internships, but still you have internships, right? Why do people take internships? Well, because they're hoping to gain skills while they're in that internship, which will turn into a higher paying job later on down the road. But to say it's not right that someone works for 5 or $10 an hour, well, look, people make rational decisions, Right? If an employer offers you a job for $5 an hour and you take it, that means that you couldn't find another employer somewhere else to pay you more than $5 an hour. Because if you would, then you would never accept the job for $5 an hour, right? Could you pay a brain surgeon $5 an hour? No. Why? Because he or she could go get a job that pays them much more than that, right? People make rational decisions. People will go work for the employer that gives them the highest pay or the best perks to work for them. Again, why a lot of people work for Uber, even though they could make more money elsewhere, is because they have a lot of perks from working that job. They can work when they want, they can wear whatever clothes they want, and they don't have a boss. And so they prefer to work that job as a lifestyle choice, even though they may be able to make more money somewhere else. But people make rational decisions. Nobody will work a very low-paying job unless it's the only job they can get. And there is nothing wrong with a teenager working for a low wage. Because again, like I said, the most important part about getting an entry-level job is the skills that you're going to learn in that job. It's not the amount of money that you make. And I'm actually the perfect example of this. So my first job, I worked as a busboy at, at this restaurant up the street from where I lived. I worked there from when I was 14 to 17 years old. And I forget exactly what I made per hour, but I worked off tips by and large. I think I was paid $4.60 an hour. 
from the restaurant, and then I earned a share of the tips every night. So I think when you break it all down, I probably made somewhere between 12 or $13 an hour. Again, I don't remember exactly, but I'd say that's probably around where my wages were. But what was important was not how much money I was making. Now, the money that I, I ended up making from that restaurant over those three years, I ended up saving all of it. And then later on down the road when I was 19, I used it to buy my first car. Um, and that was very helpful to me. But that money really didn't go very far for me, right? It wasn't a lot of money. But it wasn't important what I was making at that restaurant. Now, for me, I actually made some friends with people that were ended up being very highly successful people. And so I was able to network there, right? The person that I work for now in the investment world, I met that person at that restaurant. I worked for him at that restaurant. And if I never got that first job, I would not have the job that I have today with my career in finance. So what was important about having that first job is not how much money I made while I was working there. What's important is that I got my foot in the door. I started getting some working experience. I learned the value of a dollar. And I also got to network with people who became highly successful people, right? It kept me out of trouble as a teenager, right? I wasn't out partying every weekend. I was working from Friday, Saturday, Sunday. When I got out of school on Friday afternoon, I'd go straight to work. I worked all Friday night. I worked a 12-hour shift on Saturday, and I worked a 12-hour shift on Sunday, and that was my weekend, every weekend from 10th grade till the time I graduated. But again, what's not important is how much money I earned when I was working there. What's important is that I started to develop skills, and I started to network with people, and because I did that, now I have a very well-paying job. But that's what the important part of an entry-level job is. It's the job experience. It's getting yourself out there. And we can't focus on the pay, right? Again, if, if you don't like a person trying to raise a family on a minimum wage, before they start a family, they need to, to develop their skills and get a job that's good enough to support their family. Americans are supposed to be self-reliant. They're supposed to rely on themselves to make ends meet for their family. They're not supposed to rely on the government to do it for them. And the way we do that is we get people into the workforce at a young age, preferably when they're teenagers, so that they can develop their skills. And by the time they're ready to move out of the house, they can get a very high paying job. That's what's important. What's not important is how much money those entry level jobs pay. But even if you want to go to other examples, right, like mine, where I start working as a busboy, and that gets me into a career of finance, right? Look at, we used to have in America full service gas stations, where you pulled into a gas station, they pumped your gas for you, they cleaned your car, right? They they would service your car, they'd check the oil, right? They do all this stuff for you, and they had, because they had service attendants for gas stations. Well, there are no more service attendants for gas stations because the minimum wage has lawfully has lawfully taken the job away because an employer is not going to pay somebody less money than the productivity they deliver. But if you look at these, these uh, gas station attendants, a lot of them, what they would do is when they had downtime on the job, they would go to the mechanic who worked at that gas station as well. And they would learn from that mechanic. And so they would develop skills as a mechanic. And a lot of them would grow up to become mechanics and own their own shop or own their own gas station, right? Now, when they took that summer job as a gas attendant, they were just doing it to earn a little bit of extra money, you know, maybe to, you know, to go out and, and see a movie or, you know, you know, buy a a DVD or something, you know, they, they were just working for extra money on the side while they still lived at home. But while they were there, they were able to develop skills that allowed them to earn more money in their career later on. That's what's important about an entry level job. Look at uh, grocery stores. 
you know, 10, 15 years ago, if you went into a grocery store, you didn't bag your own groceries. You went through the line, right? You put your all your groceries on the conveyor belt. Someone checked you out. And then there was someone at the end who bagged all your groceries for you, right? They had baggers to bag groceries. They don't exist anymore because the minimum wage has destroyed that job. And so instead of having people bag groceries for you, you have to do it yourself. In many cases, there are no people to check you out. You have to go through the self-checkout machine and do it all yourself. So the minimum wage has destroyed the customer experience along with all those jobs. But look at all the people that used to bag groceries, right? Again, like me working at that restaurant, when you have people that get that first job in the grocery store, right, they develop their skills, they network, they meet other people. And they may climb the job ladder at that supermarket, right? They might end up being a, uh, a, a store manager, right? And store managers of grocery stores make six figures. They make a lot of money. They do very well. But in order to get that job, you first have to start at the bottom rung of the, rung of the job ladder. You have to get your foot in the door. And by having a higher and higher minimum wage, it just becomes harder and harder for teenagers to get their foot in the door and get that first job because employers cannot afford to employ them for the productivity that they're delivering if they have to pay them an extremely high wage. And that brings us to the economics of the minimum wage, right? The economics don't make any sense because if you're an entrepreneur or a business owner, if you're going to hire somebody who can deliver $10 an hour of productivity to you, meaning that by hiring that person, they're going to generate $10 of revenue for you. But if you have to pay them $15 an hour, you lose $5 every time they work an hour. And so why would any business person or entrepreneur want to do that, right? It doesn't make any sense economically. Let's go to like an example of an, of the landscaper. You know, if, if, if I'm a landscaper, right, I own a landscaping business and I want to hire you to, to mow lawns, right? Let's say you can mow one lawn per hour and the revenue from doing that lawn is $100. But I need $90, right, to pay for all the fixed overhead and variable expenses of running my business, right? So the cost of doing that lawn to me is $90. And you do that lawn for an hour and you bring in $100. Well, if I have to pay $90, right, for all the, the equipment expenses, the marketing that goes into acquiring that, that customer, all of the administrative costs of the business, all the insurance costs, right? If I'm paying $90 for all those costs, well, from your productivity of $100, I now only have $10 left that I can pay you per hour. So if the minimum wage is $15 per hour, that means that I lose $5 for every lawn you mow, which means that I cannot hire you at $15 an hour, right? The small businessman is not going to hire people to lose money. The whole reason you go into business is to make money, obviously. So the economics of the minimum wage don't work. It just says if you can only deliver a certain amount of productivity, you are not allowed to be hired at, at that rate. Right. If you can only deliver $10 of productivity to the entrepreneur, yet the minimum wage is $15, that means that you can legally not work for that employer because an employer is not going to hire you to lose money. And people say, oh, well, you know, it's not right for someone to be out there working hard in the summer mowing lawns for $10 an hour. Well, then you need to find an employer that has a higher economies of scale that can afford to employ you, right? If another landscaper can cover all the overhead costs of doing that lawn for $80, then he's got $20 left over to pay you to do that lawn. So employers compete with one another to pay higher wages because they want better workers and higher skilled workers. And so there's competition there, which will allow you to find a decent wage that meets the actual value that you're providing. And let's say you can't find an employer that wants to pay you enough to do a lawn. What do you do then if you want to be in landscaping and you can't find an employer that's going to pay you what you find satisfactory to, to mow lawns? Well, then just do it yourself, right? 
buy your own lawn equipment and go around and get your own customers and work for yourself, right? And again, that goes back to lifestyle choices because when you're a business person, you march to the beat of your own drum. You work when you want to work. You work how you want to work, right? You don't have anybody that you have to listen to or anybody telling you you have to be at work at this date, at this time, right? You can work for yourself. And if you feel you can buy all the equipment and all the tools that you need to mow lawns and do it at a, at a rate where you can generate more income than what your expenses are, then you can just work for yourself. But see, when you go to work for an employer, the reason you go to work for an employer is because they provide you with resources that make you more productive, right? Most people have a job where if they did the job that they're doing on their own and had to provide all the resources themselves that are provided to them by the employer, then they would be able to make much less money working for themselves. And that's why they choose to go work for an employer, right? If you're working as, for instance, as a, uh, as a financial advisor, right? You can do that for yourself. But if you do that for yourself, you have to cover all of the regulatory costs of running a financial advisory firm. You have to provide all the computers for yourself, right? You have to provide all of the, the marketing and the leads for yourself. You have to cover the costs of renting an office if you have one, right? All, you have to cover all these costs yourself. And so many more people would just choose to be a financial advisor working for a firm. This way, the firm covers all those costs, right? But when you go to work for, let's say, a Merrill Lynch as a financial advisor, they are providing you with all these resources that make you more productive and allow you to earn more money. So when you go back to the landscaping business, right, the only reason a person would go work for an employer is because that employer provides them with tools that make them more productive and allow them to earn more money. And if the person could provide those resources themselves and earn more money on their own, they would do that. But the economics of the minimum wage are simple. You, as an employee, have to earn the business you're working for more money than what they are paying you. If you do not do that, then the company cannot afford to hire you. Now, if you're a government worker, the government doesn't have to earn a profit because they're not a business, and so they can afford to overpay you, right? Because they'll, they'll just charge the taxpayer for it if they overpay you. But if you're going to work for a private business, you, by definition, cannot work for that business if you do not generate that business more income than what they are paying you because nobody is going to hire anybody to lose money. It doesn't make any sense to do that as an entrepreneur or a small businessman. It's hard enough to run a small business as it is, but when you have to deal with paying high wages to entry-level workers that have no skills, it makes it even more difficult, right? But again, the minimum wage only applies to people that have no skills. It doesn't apply to people that are highly skilled because those people can compete for higher wages. But again, it's not important if you're an entry-level worker to get paid a high amount of money. It's important that you get your first job, you develop skills, so this way you can earn more money in the future. And if you're trying to support a family on the minimum wage, well, you should have developed your skills before you started to have children in the first place. This way you could earn enough money to actually support those children and be self-reliant. And it's not anybody else's fault that you chose to do things in the wrong order if you had kids before you could develop any skills to support those kids. But another piece of the, the minimum wage is how it applies to corporations. Because if you listen to any politician, they always complain about how big employers do not pay high enough wages. Uh, this is, again, a ridiculous statement. Um, if you look at one of the biggest employers out there, Amazon, they pay extremely high wages, right? They pay above the minimum wage that's mandated. And they give health care to every single worker the first day they're on the job. They pay a much higher wage to their workers than many other corporations do. And corporations as a whole pay much higher wages than small businesses do. So the fact that you have all these politicians out there like Bernie Sanders that want to point fingers at the Amazons and Walmarts of the world and the Costcos of the world, these are all corporations that pay their workers very well. But 
a lot of people think that minimum wage increases hurt big corporations. Big corporations actually love higher minimum wages. The higher the minimum wage, the happier that big corporations are because they have economies of scale. A corporation, right, if let's say the, the minimum wage is raised to $15 an hour or $20 an hour, and they have a bunch of entry-level workers that they're paying that are only delivering, let's say, $10 of productivity, and they're mandated that now they have to pay them $20 an hour. Well, big corporations have the bankroll to be able to lose money on that labor for a while, right? Because what will happen is they'll pay for those losses for a little bit while that minimum wage hike kills off all the small businesses. And then once all the small businesses die out because they can't afford to pay these wages, the Amazons of the world then take their market share. Right, The minimum wage just helps big corporations get bigger and bigger and bigger. It just hurts the small businessman. And again, the small businessman is the lifeblood of America. But because we have high minimum wages, it's harder and harder every year for the small businessman to compete in the marketplace with these big corporations. And so they just get driven out of the market. But big corporations have enough capital to where they can make investments also to avoid higher labor costs, right? If you compare Walmart to a, a person just running a mom and pop's retail store, if the minimum wage gets risen, Walmart can afford to make capital investments in putting self-checkout machines into their stores, right? It's a very high cost at first, but over time it saves the company a ton of money from not having to pay out extremely high wages, the small businessman running a mom and pop's retail store can't afford to buy self-checkout machines to put in his store, right? So he can't make that capital investment, which means that if you raise minimum wages, it just makes that business less and less competitive, right, with Walmart. And so eventually that small business will go out of business and then Walmart takes their market share. But this destroys small businesses and corporations love it when politicians want to raise the minimum wage. It just helps them because they have the economies of scale to pass their costs on to their customer and they can spread their costs out throughout their entire business. So they can make capital investments and therefore the, min the higher the minimum wage is, the better it, it, the outlook for their business will be over time. And it's very unfortunate that people bash all these corporations right? When they're employing all these people, right? People bash Jeff Bezos all the time. He employs over 500,000 people with very good wages, health care, right? And people that work at Amazon, they work there willingly. Nobody put a gun to someone who works at Amazon's head, right? It's not like Jeff Bezos puts a gun to their head and says, come work with me, right? They go work there voluntarily. And as I said, people make rational decisions, People will work where they're given the best deal. And so if they're working at Amazon for $17 or $18 on the front lines, it's because that there's no other employer in America that's willing to pay them more money than that to work an entry-level position. But it's just amazing how people bash all these, these CEOs of major corporations, again, like the Uber CEO, who is actually trying to see what the frontline worker experiences. Meanwhile, they pay an average wage of $23 an hour, well above the minimum wage for Uber. And you know, we, when you're working Uber, you get all these perks that you wouldn't get working for other employers, yet people want to bash the CEO because they supposedly don't pay enough money. Well, look, jobs driving Uber are for teenagers and college students that need to get experience, right? That need to work their way through college. Right? They're for people that need to have a second part-time job or people that need a job a few days a week or people that, that are working their way through one job while they're working an internship somewhere else to improve their skills. But that is what the Uber jobs are there for. They're entry-level positions, and they're not there for people that are trying to support a family of three or four kids. But the minimum wage is the dumbest law ever created because it literally says if you can't deliver a certain amount of productivity to an employer, you are legally not allowed to work. And to wrap things up, you know, minimum wage 
the higher you wait, raise the minimum wage, the higher consumer prices go, right? Businesses pass their costs of production onto their customers. So if you raise the minimum wage, right, and supermarkets now have to employ people at a higher wage, they're just going to charge more higher prices for food. And when you charge higher prices for consumer products, who is affected the most by that? The low income earners, the minimum wage workers, right? The minimum wage workers, if their grocery bill is 10% more expensive in a year, it's going to affect them a lot more than it affects the person who's earning $100,000. So the minimum wage just drives up living expenses for everybody. And so even though you might get a small increase in your wage as a minimum wage worker, everything you have to buy is now more expensive. And so it offsets any wage increase that you get anyway. But big corporations love this because they can make the capital investments into machinery to replace entry-level workers. The important thing is to have zero dollar minimum wage so that you can allow people to get their first job in the job market so many teenagers today don't work right when i was a teenager every all of my friends worked everybody worked when they were when i was in high school because it was much easier to get a job then because the minimum wage was much lower but when you can get the first job on the job ladder you gain experience in many cases you can network with people right you learn how to work, you learn responsibility, you learn skills particular to a, a particular industry, and you're better off in the future because of it. And so even though you might not be earning that much money in that entry-level job in the present time, in the future, it will allow you to earn a lot more money because of the experience that you gain. You'll increase your skills, which means that you'll increase the amount of money that an employer can pay you in the future because you'll be able to deliver a lot more value to them. But if you don't have skills, you need to get a job, right? That's how you improve your skills. That's how you get skills. And when you get skills at a young age, preferably when you're in high school or when you're in college, you become self-reliant because you can work for an employer to produce enough productivity for them to where they can pay you a high wage and you're self-reliant. You don't have to rely on the government to raise the minimum wage. You don't have to rely on the government to give you other handouts, right? You're self-reliant. And Americans are supposed to be self-reliant. We're not supposed to be reliant on the government to take care of us. The whole idea of America is that you rely on yourself and you take care of yourself. And in order to do that, you need skills. And in order to get skills, you need to get in the job market. But we would be much better off if America was the way it used to be 100 years ago, where people only relied on themselves and they didn't expect things from government. And with that, I'm going to wrap up the podcast, but with Independence Day weekend coming up, I'm going to do a special podcast tomorrow on Independence Day, and it's going to be an episode really on what it means to be an American, and I'm going to do something special for Independence Day, my favorite holiday, but it's unfortunately right now a very bittersweet holiday for me, and there will be more on that tomorrow, but again, to wrap up, non-farm payroll numbers, although they look good on the surface, Really disappointing because we didn't add any manufacturing jobs. We only added jobs in retail, hospitality, and the gig economy. And the minimum wage is the dumbest law ever created because it makes no economic sense. And all it does is prevent people from developing skills so that they can earn more money in the future.